Seeing God, part two, based on the book of Job. So we are in a, in a series called Encounters with God, and uh, where we are looking at Bible characters who had extraordinary encounters with the living God. So after a, a moment of frustration and in, in a turmoil, uh, God revealed himself to, to some of these, these men, simple men, and then he revealed himself after the struggle in extraordinary ways. So we are at the moment looking at Job, and last week we had a, a look at chapters 1 and 2, which describe how Job's world was turned upside down, absolutely shattered. He lost all his wealth, his children, his servants his health, and his wife has had enough and basically told him, curse God and die. And all these things happen one after the other. And this morning in part two, we, we summarise the next 40 chapters. Uh, not an easy task, but we're just going to give you the, the, the main headings, the, the main arguments which this beautiful book presents. Job's faith was still solid in the first two chapters. At the beginning, Job bore one calamity after another with amazing resilience and submission to God. He declared, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But now... As we're going to see, his faith is shaken to its very core in the following chapters. As the misery dragged out over months, he started to question everything. Yes, 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 we know how the story ends. We, we know in our normal experience who wins in the end, right? The promises of God. But let's not get there too quickly because we are here now. And this is our daily struggle. Let let us not be too haste to get there to the end of the story and just dismiss it. Oh yeah, that worked out for him, but I'm here. No. As he goes through the ringer, it is impossible for the reader to be simply an, an innocent bystander in all of this. We, we are drawn and immersed in the story because for many this is all too real. This is what it feels like. In similar circumstances, we also might have question after question. A few answers are forthcoming. So, let's, let's look at First of all, we're going to look at a series of questions, but in major headings. First of all, Job questions life. Job questions life itself. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 26, but we're not going to read the whole chapter. This is what it says in verses 16 to 17. Why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. At at the end of chapter 2, 
those who had been Job's friends in his day of prosperity deserted him. Most of his friends deserted him. And, and, and only three of them came to comfort him. And when they saw his suffering, they were so overcome with grief. Imagine this fellow there with sores, open sores, flies, smell, stink, everything from top to bottom. When they saw his suffering, they were so overcome with grief that they said nothing for a whole week. And Job breaks the long silence by cursing the day of his birth. He wishes he had never been born in verses 1 to 7. If he had to be born, he wishes he was still born. Then he would have gone straight to the place of the dead. Because death releases all people from the sufferings of life, whether young or old, rich or poor, good or bad. That's what he tells us in verses 17 to 19. Life for Job only increases the misery, so he feels he would be better off dead than alive. If you've ever felt this way, you're in good company, as a few Bible characters certainly did. But if believers, those who follow and have faith in the living God, feel this way, spare a thought for those who have no faith in God, where there is no meaning or purpose in this life or in the next. What about them? Well, H.G. Wells, the famous historian and philosopher, he said this at the age of 61, I have no peace, all life is at the end of the tether. The famous poet Lord Byron, who lived a very promiscuous life, once said, My days are in yellow leaf. The flowers and fruits of life are gone. The worm and the canker and the grief are mine alone. So Job questions life. Next, the friends question Job. His friends wept with him and sat with him for seven days without saying a word. But when Job began to complain, they could hold back no longer. So for 28 chapters, 3 to 31, Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Sophar and Bildad, the three amigos, debated back and forth. The statements and questions go back and forth for three rounds. Everybody has a turn and then we start again. Job speaks and then the friends go... And so he continues. But they weren't the only ones listening in because apparently a group of bystanders started coming in because Job was a VIP, he was an important leader, he was a judge, he was an important person in the community. Everybody knew what was going on in his life. So these bystanders came and listened, were listening in on the debate. And later on, one of these bystanders could also, he was sort of disappointed at the fact that these three amigos couldn't make their argument properly against Job, and so he speaks up, and that's Elihu. Now, now, even though he was the youngest, he seems to be the wisest of the lot. Eliphaz points out that the past... So I'll just briefly summarise some of the arguments that these friends and bystanders say. Eliphaz points out that in the past, 
Job had comforted others in their troubles, but now that he has troubles himself, his faith has failed. If he truly honoured God and was upright, there would be no need for his despondency, for despondency, feeling sorry for himself. He should stop complaining and leave the matter in God's hands. Okay, that's all he has. Bildad, the other one, tells Job that God is always just and that his kids probably died because of their sins. Chapters 8, 1 to 4. All disaster, according to Bildad, is the consequence of personal sin. That's, that's good comfort, isn't it? So far, so far, so far, no, no, so far, so far is, is, is the most hot tempered out of all the friends. At, at one point, after, after feeling insulted by Job's response, he actually affirms that Job's riches were unjustly gained and early death will be a fitting punishment for him. Another great encouragement. Elihu asks Job this question. If a person repents, and this is actually not bad, if a person repents from his wrongdoing and then demands that God reward him with his favour, in the end, is that really repentance? Remember Jesus said something similar along those lines. It says, um, in the, I think in the King James Version, it says, we are worthless servants. We've only done what we were supposed to do. Right? It, it's people, People's lives, you know, they repent, they, they come to the and, and suddenly they expect, you know, God's blessing upon their lives. And, and so, what's the motivation in the end? As the chapters roll on, the, the arguments get more strident, the, the friends get more strident in their opinions. They continue to kick this dog while he's down. Job expected kindness from his friends, but found none. While he didn't ask his friends for money or help, he at least hoped for some a little sympathy it would be nice. And he accuses them of being heartless and challenged them to show him where he's wrong. This is what he says in chapter 6, verses 24 to 25. He says, Teach me and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words. But what do your arguments prove? I, I, I have to be honest, sometimes I cringe at some of the answers offered from the pulpit and from the pew that go beyond what the words of God say. People who presume to be speaking for God, but in the end have no idea. Yes, I do believe in total depravity, as ultimately all sin is tracked back down to the garden. We have all sinned with Adam, and there is none righteous. But like Job's friends, when we too quickly connect suffering 
as direct consequence of personal sin, all we are doing is appear heartless and disseminate ignorance. Be careful. Stop pointing the finger. Those stones that you got in your hand, perhaps you need to let them go. Job questions God. After questioning life, Job's confidence in God started to reveal some cracks. That's pretty obvious. And while trying to defend himself against the bad theology of his buddies, Eliphaz, Bildad, so far, he said some things about God that weren't exactly true. So it's, it's, it's a little bit dangerous. If you're going to quote the book of Job... Uh, you need to expand a little more. Don't just simply you know, get a verse from Job and, and just put it on, on social media. Stuff. You, you, the context is important. Is this true with the rest of Scripture? Especially if it's something spoken by his, his friends. So, he said some, some things about God that weren't exactly true. This is Job. He began to insist in his, in his own righteousness at the expense of God's justice. He pleaded his innocence and that God was being unfair with him. He didn't come to the point where he cursed God, as as his wife was encouraging him to do, but he did feel that God was, well, a little bit distant and uncaring. And he said this in chapter 13, verses 23 to 24. How many wrongs, and the question, right? How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offence and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Job could only think in the midst of his suffering that God was ignoring his faithfulness and treating him as an enemy. He's not rebelling against God, as his friends claim. On the contrary, he wants to meet God. He, he's, he wants to present his case before him and, and receive at least some explanations. What's going on? So in chapter 23, verses 1 to 5, uh, this is what we read. Even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and and, and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out that that he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Now in the Bible we have many why God passages in the prophets, um, in the Psalms, uh, Lamentations. After Jesus was nailed to a cross and suffering the most cruel injustice of anyone, he echoed the words of the psalmist. You know the words, Why have you forsaken me? And it is almost inevitable the believers will eventually question God's fairness and wisdom because that is part of being human. A personal crisis, 
death of a loved one, uh, even some terrible tragedy on, on a national scale. All these will usually lead us to, to ask questions. Why? Why God? But one thing we can admire about Job, that even though he was a sorry sight, he hung in there. Which is much more than we can say about others. He, he was mixed doctrinally. He wasn't all that doctrinally pure, but he persevered. He kept going. And, and through the eyes of faith, he stated this in chapter 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That's, that's pretty serious commitment to God. You might kill me, but I'm still not giving up. And then the wonderful declaration, chapter 19, 25 to 26. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. And that that theme of seeing God follows in in the following verses, which is the, the, the title for our message, Seeing God. Job refused to give up on God. And even though he did not understand why this was happening to him, the lines of communication were going. He was asking. He he just didn't turn away and give up. Someone put it this way. They said, the choice I have in life is this. Am I going to allow my circumstances to determine what I believe about God, or will I let God determine what I should believe about my circumstances? Turning things around, right? Now God questions Job. It is now time for God to ask Job some questions. He's every right to do so. He's a sovereign Lord. After all, he is the creator, Lord of the universe. So for the first 37 chapters, Job asks, why God? Why God? And the last five chapters is this, this intense recovery session that, that um, Job needed to get his life back together again. So as the 38th chapter begins, God finally ends his silence and ends and, and, and it, it takes us to the climax of the story. But one thing is certain, that God is not going to speak. Despite his pain, despite his sores, despite everything that he went through, God is not going to speak all softly and cuddly to him. Uh, Job Job chapter 38 verses 1 to 3. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. 
I will question you and you shall answer me. Yes, we all have a list of questions that we want to ask God, right? I think when we get to heaven, and some of you might get to heaven a little bit sooner than I, or I don't know. There's, <laughs> there's no order, by the way. And you have those lists and you say, well, here's my questions, Lord, but uh, what would happen if God starts questioning us? Not when we get to heaven, but even now. And as we read the scriptures, it's God speaking to us. It's God asking questions of our lives. Perhaps here we expected God to explain to Job why he was suffering and saying, look Job, this, just to let you know that this was a test to, to prove the sincerity of your devotion to me. Okay? Or, Job, this trial was designed to exercise and strengthen your faith. Biblically true. But God didn't say that. God didn't offer any explanations. Instead, God turns up with a storm and challenges Job and says, Brace yourself. Come on. Stand up. It's my turn to question you now. He drilled Job with question after question after question after question. 77 questions, one straight after the other. And we can break the questions down into two main categories. The first ones are questions about the earth. In verses 4 to 5, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Okay. Many scientists have speculated about how the earth began and they have all their theories about how it all happened. The late uh, Stephen Hawking said, um, the universe was created because of the force of gravity. Gravity, okay, well, who created gravity, Stephen? Questions about its creatures. There's a lot of questions about here. In verses 39 to 40, for example, do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Talk to any African and they would would tell you that one of the biggest fears is the lion hiding in the thicket. Can't see them. In other words, Job, tell me, when I was mapping out the universe and laying the foundations upon which you now stand, just where, where were you? And God simply pointed out that Job didn't have a clue. And, and, and he better think twice before parading his own goodness in front of the Creator, his Maker. And, and, and God is using these questions to help Job realise that he is not as smart as he thinks he is. There are a lot of things in the universe and in this life that he doesn't understand. He's getting at his pride. If God knows how to design and run the universe, 
then God deserves his trust and he deserves our trust. These questions from God helped him realise just who God was and just who Job was. And as Job considered these questions, he experienced the majesty and the grandeur of God. This experience humbled his heart. If he wasn't humble enough, he's humbled even more. It refined, it strengthened and straightened out his faith. That was faltering. So whether we we focus on the earth or the sea or the dawn or the snow or the hail or the constellations or the rain, the upshot is that we have to humbly recognise that we are simply, for the most part, ignorant and impotent. We are utterly surrounded above and below by mysteries. We think we're pretty smart because of the scientific advancements of the last couple of hundred years and the pride of man, he gets a big head. Do you think God is impressed? Nah. We're pretty impressed because we, we landed a gadget on, on Mars and we say, wow, bravo, well done. We should actually be overwhelmed by our ignorance. Not impressed with science. We should be overwhelmed in thankfulness and say, wow, just consider the atmospheric pressure that is out there. We should all actually, I don't know if you consider this at all, but we should actually be flat like a pancake. Because if you, if you lived on the moon... You know how you're fighting all these weight, you know, you're 100 kilos here and you say, well, I'm a little bit too heavy. If you're on the moon, you'd only be weighing, what, 25 kilos or something? You're on the wrong planet, that's the problem. (laughs) And finally, we stand in the presence of mystery. The Lord has not revealed us everything we want to know, but he has revealed to us what we need to know. Through scripture, through his son. But, but we humbly have to recognize that the ultimate questions and answers belong to God. Can we live with that? Often I have young people, the not so young, throw all these questions at me seeking answers from a preacher who's supposed to know it all. Try as best I can, offer some explanations, but really the answers I give achieve the desired response that you're hoping. Chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask... Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely, and this is Job talking, Job confessing before God, surely I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. 
You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. And Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, in in the presence of majesty, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Formerly, Job had a theoretical knowledge of God. He was a righteous man. He lived a good life. But now, enabled by and persevering persevering through the trials, he, he personally meets God in the midst of the storm. He describes his experience as having seen God. Although his questions are not answered, he himself is fully satisfied. Get that. Are we, would we ever arrive here? His friends spoke about God. Job spoke to God. And in the end, read the story, the three amigos were, were proven wrong by God himself. Job, Job's character shines through. He is vindicated, and and not only and and this is this is the, the the good thing about Job that he doesn't hold grudges. He forgives his friends. Not only that, but he actually has to intercede for them before God, so that God would forgive his friends. The other thing I note here is that how good are are we on the whole issue of forgiveness and restoration? And even we might go through a lot less than what Job had to go through, but we seem to build up these crankiness through life. You know what I mean. Oh, he's cranky. He's just had a hard life. Really? Talk to Job. Your struggles, Job's struggle was for a season. It didn't last forever. Don't carry your pain forever. Don't carry your your crankiness forever. It's only for a season. It's only for a time because God will redeem. God will restore. And as Job said, even if he doesn't, I will have faith in him. The most important question is not why has my life taken a turn for the worse? I think a better question would be does God still deserve my trust when life takes a turn for the worse. God has been good to me in the sunshine. Is he still good to me in the storm? In the garden, Jesus submitted to the Father's will. On the cross, 
He experienced the loneliness and the separation from the Father because of our sin. But he also displayed the ultimate trust in his sovereign will when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Can we do any worse than that? And while fully trusting Jesus Christ, don't expect all the suffering you've ever done, whether self-inflicted or undeserved or undeserved and unjust, to vanish. You're still going to get them. The idiocy of your own behaviour, the mistakes that we make, or mistakes that others make for us, on us, they're not going to disappear. That's not the point. Jesus is not a self-help vending machine. You put a coin, you put a prayer, out pops a package healing for all your troubles. Rather, learn, submit, grow, be moulded by creator, the artist, the potter. Get in step with the creator so that he can direct your path from sin and despair to bring you closer to himself. Trusting his promises that he is never going to leave us or forsake us. He actually lives in us and his purposes will be fulfilled for his glory. Amen.